I want to give a, a minute before I share this message with you. I want to give a moment to honor. Oh, yeah. Huh. Honor uh, those who lead us in worship. Um, one, I just want to say for me, I'm personally grateful. Thank you, Tina. And my wife and Tina and so many others that have stepped up. Diane, I even though you weren't here the moment, you were worshiping with us and you've been so tremendous. So many that deserve recognition. And I want you to know that it, these songs have blessed me. The worship in our church, listening to everybody sing together, has had such a powerful impact. I think there's a lot of times I couldn't preach well had you guys not worshipped well. And I just want to give honor to them. Would you guys put your hands together, please, for those who have led us in worship? I've known people over the years who have shared with me that the quality of worship made all the difference as far as their choice of church, their place to be a part of. I know that the word spoken is as precious to you as the worship that comes forward. And as that happens, and we recognize it, and there's been some tremendous times here. I, I remember last week was just, it felt like there's the congregation just jumped in. I felt it this week too but that we jumped in and we worshipped with all of our heart together. You can hear someone in the background sharing, somebody saying something about praising the Lord, and it's not just the song, it's that you're lifting your heart up and, and we're hearing that praise, and it means something to Jesus. You know, the angels get to do it. Everybody else, you know, you think about the joys, and some of, so there's some guys, you know, I'm not knocking anybody who's a sports fan out there, but there's some guys that they're exuberance for what's going on there. And you thought that life was all about the sports game, right? But when we really get down to it, life is all about the opportunity to be able to give our shouts of praise to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so, you know, I, I just think about if you feel like, hey, I feel like, man, that's going to be awkward to just give it a little bit of a shout or a little hoot or a holler because your, your, your Jesus means something to you. Just remember, there's some guys out there doing some pretty pretty weird things out there in the name of whatever else. Let's top them. Let's just make sure that when we're doing it, we're topping their praises for something that doesn't have the same quality to it. And Jesus is our life giver. You know, the Bible tells us that in Him we live and move our, and have our being. Every breath you draw, every heartbeat that comes beating in your chest, every moment, every second is Him making sure that you are staying alive. You know, we think of life support. And, you know, maybe you don't think of life with Jesus as life support. But the divine providence and hand of God is your life support. If God ever removed His hand off you, you'd stop breathing at once. You wouldn't have another opportunity to breathe another breath of air. Shouldn't He get our highest praises today? Shouldn't He get that? Amen. So thanks again for those of you who lead in worship. You're invaluable to what God is doing. You're invaluable. Thank you. I want to share with you something that's on my heart. You know, we've been talking a lot about being there for others, loving others, demonstration of that love in what we do. But this, I think, this message this morning is going to be the heartbeat of everything we've been talking about. I want to share this with you with a heart that sometimes is broken, but compassionate about what I'm going to share with you. The forgotten way. If you'll turn with me, in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. I just want to open up with this scripture. Colossians chapter 3, and then I want to pray. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Father, thank you today that we get such a demonstration of the Holy Spirit at work. Lord, you are alive and working in every vital part of our life. And we're now, uh, as we experience the 
the awareness of Your presence. We want to be drawn in, Lord. We want to be drawn in so that there isn't anything in this life that distracts us, that pulls us away from the reality of who You are. What I am about to share, Lord, I pray as You have animated it and put it in my life, that You will make me a vessel fitted to be able to share that. Lord, inspire our hearts this morning. Jesus, we need the inspiration from heaven. We need an outpouring, a baptism of inspiration today. Lord, we're we're so inspired about what we believe. We're so inspired in our faith toward Jesus and how real that is for us. That God, that it's impossible for it to not leak out. Lord, that it just pour out of us, God. We are just wells springing up into everlasting life. Lord, there's an overflow in the people of God today. And so Jesus, as you are magnifying and revealing more and more the securities that we enjoy but oftentimes forget to think about, Lord Jesus, draw out of us so that we can share that with somebody who doesn't experience those same things. Lord, knowing you is the best that life has to offer, and we wouldn't want anything else in place of it. Jesus, today, Lord, have us have ears to hear. Lord, give us hearts to receive it. And Lord, with these bodies, enable them to be able to completely commit ourselves and express ourselves in faithfulness to you. We love you, God, and thank you for all that you've done this morning. Lord, all that you're doing right now. Lord, what a beautiful, beautiful thing you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this message is not about forgiveness, even though forgiveness enters into it. It's about compassion. About compassion, a word that we don't get to hear too often. I might even say, I'm not sure, but this might even be my first sermon. And not that other sermons haven't related to it, but not directly about compassion. You know, we have so many sermons about faith, love, and all of those things. But compassion, I think, is so much a part of everything. And I didn't, you know, when you're, if you're ever putting a message together, you're ever preparing a sermon for people, when you read in and you dig into the Word of God, there's things that stand out in that moment. And there's some things that stood out to me while I was taking time to prepare for this Sunday. And uh, this is definitely one of them that's starting to get to be a bigger piece to my life than I ever did before, than it ever has before. I hope it does for you as well. I want to share a few things with you which I believe is true about compassion. Number one, compassion determines how you look at people. Compassion determines how you look at people. <clears throat> Let's look in uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 28. Those of you who may be wondering, why is he dressed up so nice like he did last week and you know, all of that? And I can't tell you why. I just felt like the Lord has put it on my heart to put my suits on these last two Sundays. I feel like the preacher's in me coming out a little bit more when I get dressed up. So no particular special thing, but I really enjoy it. So, And I get some really nice compliments out there too. So You would like to say that that doesn't enter into it, but it certainly does. <laughs> Only the Lord knows what the bigger motivation of the heart is, right? Luke chapter 6, 27 through 28. This is out of the New King James Version. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who despitefully use you. You know, um, there's a a book put, um, put together by Fuchs. It was like for Book of Martyrs. And it was, uh, it's called Extreme Devotions. And in that book, there's a story, and I'll do the best I can. I was wanting to actually bring the whole story and read it to you, and I forgot, but I'll just tell you the story. It was a boy who, he came to uh, one of the, the um, officials or officers who had persecuted in, um, his parents, and particularly his mom. And he came with a bouquet of flowers. And he gave him the flowers and he said, would you give this? My mom always taught us to love. And would you give this to the wife of the mother of your children? And we don't think about how deep love can be. 
And I can only imagine, you know, the scars and struggles that happen in somebody's life to watch a mother or a father be persecuted. But I think Jesus set down something that we need to take into consideration when he talks about loving our enemies, loving those who persecute us, loving those that have we've lost the sense of favor with in life, as it were. <clears throat> and I want to get back to that here in a little bit, but here's just kind of coming back to this part, that compassion determines how you look at people. The obligation and the motive to rightly do with uh, do what Jesus said here is supplied to us through compassion. You might not think about it. You may not think about what gets behind the words that Jesus said. But what, what you're not reading here is just a mirror, just get it done and over with. None of us could approach what Jesus just said here with the mentality of I'm just going to take this and do this compassionate thing or this good thing to somebody who's an enemy or even who persecutes me. It says even that they despitefully use you and persecute you. You know, that's as hard as it gets for most of us. <clears throat> and the thought of what Jesus said wasn't that Jesus was saying just carry out the command. Jesus wanted to instill something inside of us that gave us the power to do exactly what He said without any reservation. It's almost like everything that Jesus said I can do without any issue or struggle moving forward in it. So I think compassion is instilled in what Jesus is talking about. There's a compassion for those who are your enemies. And I think we'll get into that a little bit more. But think about this. How do you have compassion for your enemy? How do you have compassion for somebody who despitefully uses you and persecutes you? And all of us have been in different stages and places in life where we've been bruised, hurt, battered through somebody else's uh, indifference. And, and some of it, I would say, people haven't gotten past. And the heart of the Gospel is to help you move beyond these things and find life again. Find hope where everything else is hopeless. Find there's actually joy to return again in life, in, in some of our life struggles. And you know what? We want to be able to see how Jesus wants to do that. I want to give you my definition for compassion. <clears throat> compassion is the moral barrier that prevents us from being seduced into darkness, the darkness of self-vindication and revenge. It arouses us to pity those who are still ensnared in the evil that we have been freed from. So you see two things that are really important. One is, is that it keeps us from wanting to enact on the revenge inside of us. You did this to me. I want to do it back to you. So there's something that just is a barrier to that. But it goes beyond that barrier and it now puts a pity in your heart, a love for somebody else that now you're beginning to see behind all that they've done. There's a blindness there. There's a separation from what really life is all about, what Jesus really intended for us to know. So the quality of life and the moral hope of a person. They're so degraded in the darknesses in them in ways that is, you don't really realize. But we're acting out of the inner struggle that's within. And so our persecutors have the same dark difficulty we had before Jesus got into our life. Forgiveness is a thing that's a, it's a non-issue for people. Like the reality is, I won't forgive. You've done me harm. I'm not going to forgive you. So, there's also that rationale that beats down upon us. And it's amazing to think about the more that you think bitterly upon somebody else, the more you allow yourself to fester with the thoughts of anger or hatred or bitterness of any kind, the more it demoralizes you. And see, what you don't see in them is that very same thing and acting upon them. I remember, see, I'm going to share this. I'm going to share this carefully because it's hard for me to share. I had a dream. This is about probably a year ago that I had this dream. And I, it was strange to me. The dream seemed so strange. But this dream was vivid. It was, it, was an, it was like a nightmare to me. But the Lord showed me something through it. And I don't know. Like It reminds me of Abraham. It said that there was a, a horror of darkness that came upon him as he had this dream that God had given him. Well, that's the way it felt for me. And I remember in this dream, there was like this, like as a concentration camp. It was a place you didn't want to go inside of. And 
And you knew that there was prisoners inside and people who couldn't get out. And it was interesting because the fence on this in this dream was this fence was elevated above the ground so that you could easily get under it. And that in part of the dream didn't make much sense to me at first. I was like, why the fence? And I remember this dream. And then I remember there was this man in the dream that he was, he had this martial arts technique where he could break limbs and he could do damage to you like this. And he was thrilled. It was like his life purpose to take somebody and batter them to the place that they couldn't leave. So the reason for the fence to be up elevated was to bring those who were in, in there to such a place that they couldn't leave, but to invite you to come in. And I remember, I remember in my dream, it's so vivid to me, I remember looking at somebody, a man, who looked like there was no life in him. He was completely lifeless. And I remember looking at him thinking in the dream that he was dead. And then I remember this man, this evil martial artist, as you would put it, I remember him taking him and, and doing something to him, and his eyes awoke with agony, deep, deep agony. I couldn't get over. When I woke up out of the dream, I couldn't get over what I had seen and the agony. And I remember I woke up out of the dream and I said, Lord, what does this mean? What does this mean? And he said to me, this is what happens when people compromise. See, the devil wants you to compromise. The devil wants you to get in on his game. And he doesn't want to kill you. He just wants to maim you so that you can't get back out on your way from the fence. You can't get out from under the oppression and the darkness. And see, this is what I think the Lord gave me this for, was to stir the compassion in my spirit for those that are on the other side that can't get out from under the grips of darkness. They don't know how at this point. Their spirit is broken down. Their mental capacity to see themselves in a hope of life is already diminished. And now we're beginning to realize that this is the state that my enemies have been in. Even those who persecute me do it in that kind of darkness. And I have for a long time struggled to want to share that dream. But I know that the Lord sometimes gives us dreams that so impress and bear down on our spirit so that we'll see it from His view. We'll see it from His view. So there was a man in my life, uh, he was my mom's boyfriend at the time, his name was Ron. He was a Vietnam vet that was almost a sole survivor in Vietnam. He had seen a lot of tragedy and a lot of brokenness, and this man was broken. And I remember coming to faith, and I remember he was my first wall of resistance. And I'm telling you, there was a wall of great resistance. And I remember in that, that he had, uh, at one point, and I might have shared this with you before, but he had... He was trying to ship me off here to Enterprise. We were living in Walla Walla, and he had told me, he said, if you try and get out of this truck, I swear I will run you over. He was angry. He was mad. And there was just this darkness that when he looked at me, he wanted to kill me. He had threatened my life multiple times. The last time I was in the house, he had told me, he said, if I ever see your face again, I swear I'll kill you. And I think he had the goods to do it. But I remember at first... I was energized. I didn't have a fear of the man. I actually felt more energized. The more he attacked, the more gusto I had. The more I was like, I'm ready to keep on going forward. But as time lapsed and things took place, I actually began to have a season of bitterness, a season of withdrawal. The more I could be away from him, the more I wanted to be away from him. The less I wanted to pray for him. And I remember a man of God in my life told me, he said, you need to be careful for that. You need to be careful for that. And so it finally came round back around and I began to resettle things back in my heart and ask the Lord to forgive me for the bitterness that was developing in my heart. And I began to pray for that man with a renewed zeal and a love to see his soul on the other side of eternity. To see God change him. See, because there could be nothing better as a testimony for Jesus. 
is for somebody who, who caused suffering, deep, difficult suffering in my life, to be renewed by the grace of the gospel. To be able to hug that man, I have never gotten that chance. But I would, have, I would still love to this day to be able to take him in my arms and love that man. I would love to see that we're both looking at each other with the same light in our eyes, that Jesus brought hope in my life, and he's renewed you and done the same thing for you. Why would I not want that? Why would I not want that for Jesus who died and suffered and was resurrected and buried for my, for my, I was the same, I was a persecutor of him in one way. And Jesus saved me. And so there's this removal and there's this thought that starts to begin to permeate and this thought of what happens to this man. What happens to this man if he doesn't find Jesus? What happens if the only one who's paid the price and only, and only in Jesus' blood can he wash away the guilt of his sin? What happens to this man? What happens? And you begin to start weighing in on the thoughts of eternity and you thought there's one day he's going to shed this physical body, but this spirit is ever going to live. And there will be an eternity for that man. Can I live with that thought? knowing that I held bitterly. I didn't want to let love loose. I didn't want to let go of the prejudices that had been built in my heart because of. Because I had been hurt. And then you start weighing in on the cross and you realize my pain is nothing. is nothing compared to what Jesus endured for, for me. So that renews a different focus, and that's where the compassion should come out of. So I had a, a time when I think I had compassion for him. Then as the severity hit and time had gone, I'd lost it, and by the grace of God, I had regained it. See, this, I believe, compassion changes the context. It changes the whole context. If I can look at you not as somebody who's hurt me, but as somebody that I can be compassionate toward, it changes the whole context now. And see, many of us could renew our prayer life. Many of us would have the fervency and the zeal and the love to intercede for souls if we just had this one piece called compassion. Because it would redefine the way you look at it, the way you feel about it. Compassion redefines the offenses. Now that they don't feel as, the offenses feel differently. See, I think of Peter and John after they had been beaten and then they walked away. And they had rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. You know, this, this Jesus that John the Baptist said, I am not even worthy to unloose the shoe latchet from off of his foot. That I was able to suffer shame for his namesake. You know, we were just worshiping him by lifting hands. And we were singing songs of praise and exuberance for what God has done for us. But how about another kind of worship? The kind of worship that says, I have been suffered shame for his name, and I counted it a pleasure to be able to offer that as an offering of worship, of still love to Jesus. He's still worthy of it. So it redefines the offenses. It safeguards our hearts from unforgiveness. You know, unforgiveness does more damage to you than it does to the person that you're not forgiving. And so unforgiveness creates a bitter scars inside of us. I remember a man that I met a long time ago and his dad was already dead and he was still angry with him. He still had no forgiveness for his father. And I thought, how in the you're still struggling with this revenge and vindication of something you can never possess. Never possess. And yet, for to what end? To what end? What will you gain by staying bitter? Lastly, compassion is a forerunner to miracles. Actually, uh, I wrote here in my uh, notes, scripture. I was going to actually put a scripture down, and I forgot what scripture it was. I didn't write it down in my note. But I remember it said Jesus had compassion on them and he healed them. He had compassion and he healed them. You know, I think that's interesting because as we talk about having faith, I think part of our faith is having compassion. I don't think the scripture highlights that so much in our Lord as if not to make sure that we caught that ourselves is that compassion is a very, very real part of our having faith. Do you believe somebody to be healed today? You know, it's, it's fantastic. It's phenomenal to pray for somebody 
and they get healed. But I think part of this, and this has just been my own experience, it's the part of me that says, I can't, I can't weigh in anymore. I can't do this anymore without seeing them healed. There's just something about them. There's something about how you've put them on my heart that I can't get over. The feeling that I so much want this, that it's like my daily bread. I can't, I don't know why, but I can't go to the dinner table and feel comfortable to eat. I'm struggling to sleep at night because I'm thinking about them. The Spirit of God stirring my thoughts over and over again for that person. And then the Holy Spirit using that. As I just think the background of the faith that when we step up to them, the love that's exploding in our hearts, when we pray, we pray in faith. We pray believing because God's giving us eyes to see the promises of God are not little things. They're huge. So what happens when we lose compassion? I think we all kind of know that, but here's some thoughts. Indifference and cold. Here I've been (laughs) crying, getting a little bit of teary-eyed here, and I need to blow my nose. Yep, they get that on the recording too. What happens when we lose compassion? Indifference and cold-heartedness set in. This is when one clings to the offense of another, giving grounds to malice and unforgiveness. It darkens our perception of one another. At the same time, hardens our hearts toward God. See, what we need to remember is this. You can't have, you can't have bitterness toward another person and not actually affect your relationship badly with God. So if we feel like, well, it's just with that other person, you are totally misunderstanding. Jesus actually said it. Actually, if you think about it, salvation hinges on forgiveness. Jesus said, if you don't forgive them their offenses against you, you will not be forgiven by your Heavenly Father. Wow. But that's how much Jesus put the emphasis on here. Jesus actually talks about you can't love God and hate your brother. You can't have bitter and sweet water mixed together. So because of that, this is huge. This is big that we have to guard ourselves against the indifference and cold-heartedness by maintaining a compassion. Because what's, what's the middle ground? Where do you go with middle ground? There is no middle ground between compassion and indifference. You either have one or you have the other. That's why I think some people have just gotten to the place. Well, think about Samuel when he says, God forbid that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you. Well, what gets behind that prayer? What gets behind the prayer is the, the power of the compassion. The deeper the compassion, the more powerful the prayer. The more you want to pray, the longer you're compelled to pray, the more you're willing to stay until God does something. That's compassion keeps you in the prayer closet. Indifference enlarges the offenses. Have you ever met people? It's like, yeah, okay, I got the, I got what the problem is, but what in the world did you do with this thing? It's 10,000 times larger. Like you just can't get away from it. It's bigger and bigger and bigger, and your mind puffs it up, and you start dwelling on the offense and making it bigger and bigger. So not only are we gonna, not only we're we gonna have it, it's gonna continue to worsen our condition over time. It's like a cancer that gets in our body and continues to get even worse. It ensnares us with bitterness, and indifference leads us into sin and prevents forgiveness. You know, how many of us want forgiveness, right? How many of us want that? We want people to forgive us. How many of you claim to have, you're a perfect person? I'm just waiting. Come on, come on. Good. Isaac, come on up. Come on up, son. (laughs) Because we're imperfect, we have already the recognized the reality, I will need forgiveness. I'm going to need people to be merciful to me. I hope they will. I'm going to make blunders along the way. I do dumb things. I even say things in the moment that I wished I could take back. And I don't want you to hold that against me. I don't want you to remember that for the rest of your life, much less mine. And yet we have these thoughts going in. And, and because we know that, we want forgiveness. But the harder battle is giving the forgiveness. Because... That was on the side of, I, I actually received the pain, I received the hurt. It's their job to do something for me. And because of that, we often get stuck in this prison of unforgiveness. And I think the only key to getting out of it is compassion. One more time, God baptizes with compassion. 
God, one more time, just baptize us and pour out the spirit of compassion upon our lives. Compassion is vital to the ministry of the gospel. I know this to be true. If you want to share the gospel and the forgiving love of God, you want to, you want to show somebody who's been living in sin and for the first time they're going to get to know. They're going to get to know. Listen to me. They're going to get to know what it means for the first time to be guiltless. It's not because I pushed it out of the door and it keeps finding its way back. This time, my conscience is free. The guilt of my past, the guilt of my sin is totally gone. And that person is going to get to know what it means for the first time to be totally shame, without shame, without guilt, without the conflict of their conscience weighing in on them, even with people who don't forgive them any longer. And now this new birth and this new moment for them is coming into action for them. Don't you think that compassion is a huge part of that? Isn't that just a very, very real piece to that piece of uh, their being born again? And how much better for the soul that's just for the first time, look what I've done to others. Look how I've, look, look what I've done to them. And they just the legacy, they look back on their life with nothing but regret from person to person in relationship to relationship and wondering what they could do. And to think that there would be one of those people that could enter into their life and say, I forgive you. I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. And to have the party that you had abused and hurt love you like Jesus loved you. You get what I'm saying? And so some of us are in that place where I need to do that. I, I don't have compassion for this person. You're compassionate toward. And Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what do you have? What do you have? But love on its highest scale goes far beyond that. And Jesus made that plain by what he did. God commended his love. I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I'm going to get back to the scripture. But God commended his love toward us in that while we're yet sinners. God demonstrates. It says demonstrates. That word demonstrate caught me. See, we get an opportunity to demonstrate how real that love is. How many of you are good with what I'm sharing with you? Okay, give me a few more amens so I know I'm good to go. I know it gets quiet out there sometimes because it's like, this is real. Let's look uh, again. I want to go back to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Compassion is vital to the ministry. Therefore, as the elect of God, Holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. If you go through the Bible and you start looking for like that word compassion and where it's found and how it's translated in different parts of our English language in our Bible, you'll find tender mercies is one of them. Isn't that a great way to highlight compassion? Tender mercy. Mercy is another. Forgiveness actually enters into it. You like see that all over. As compassion actually is forgiveness, sometimes translated in Scripture. You'll find a lot of different pieces of this. Like, it's a big thing. The elect of God, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If you happen to notice here in the same verse, I think it's in the same verse here, or at least the same two verses, it's actually talking about compassion and forgiveness together. Talk about a marriage, right? Like, there is no marriage. With, there's nothing where these two are complete without one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. As Christ forgave you, that's the gospel. So you must do. It's interesting what actually motivates us. If you think about it, what motivates you to do good? What motivates you to forgive somebody who's caused offenses in your life? Motivation is one of the most important parts of every part of our life. I'm motivated because I feel forced to. Sometimes the mo motivation comes out of what I feel like I'm going to get out of it or what I perceive that I'm going to get out of it. It's kind of this selfish tie to it. Other types of motivation is what I want to do is escape some misery that's going to come to me by not doing it. So a lot of times our entanglements in, in life can be with relationships to where we want to do something because we don't want to go on bitterly in life having the same difficulty get worse and worse. 
So the motivation behind it is just to kind of get peace for ourselves. To get some kind of happiness in life or at least scale the possibility of how bad it could get, right? So those motivations are a piece of this. But what we really look at when Jesus is actually motivating, he's motivating purely on an intrinsic principle. There isn't what you get out of it. That's the focus here. And the intrinsic principle goes directly straight back to him. So when we keep remembering that the reason I'm doing this is because it glorifies him. I may not get a piece of happiness. I may not be able to enjoy things. Truth be told, we always do. Always there's something that comes out of it for us, but that's a secondary part of this. And so we see this as Jesus says, forgive others, you must do it. And that must part is the part that we struggle with because we're like, it feels like it's obligation. Last week, I'm going to tell you, out of what I preached last week, I am so, like the part that I held on to, and I didn't have it in my notes, I think I told you this, but I said, there's this thing where we, we have that obligation in front of us and the thing that motivates us to it and the fact that we know we should do it, but now here's the compelling desire to do it. I want to do this. And I said, you know, when Jesus gives us the commands, we still have the obligation. But the part that's different is, is that now we have the freedom that comes with that obligation. I'm just as free as if it were a choice. As if it weren't an obligation. I'm just as free to do this. So when you look at what Jesus is giving, when he says you must do, he's implying that you, can't, you won't want to do anything else. The motivation will be there with the obligation to do so. The whole gospel centers around a concept that is so contrary to the nature of man that it is not possible for us to get beyond our own insecurities selfish am- and, and selfish ambitions without being baptized with holy compassion. You're not going to get there. We need this in our life. Our hearts need to be energized and fueled for the mission of Christ with something inside us that can cling to the gospel in the midst of godlessness. Peter kind of pretty much uh, proclaimed it among the people, and he said, There's, this is an untoward and wicked generation, and you need to flee from the godlessness of this generation. Well, how do I flee from it when I'm constantly irritated and angry and mad at the wickedness of the generation? Jesus gave us something. He said, you're going to have compassion for this indifferent darkness and the people around you. And it's powerful because when Peter begins to preach, and he preaches powerfully, he preaches pointedly, it strikes them like arrows, but you see the compassion. And I'm going to reveal to you the compassion in this. You're going to like, okay, I believe you, absolutely, I'm solid on this. But as we see this in Romans 5.8, and I already shared this scripture with you, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us. I think you see compassion in it, but I think the demonstration is so crucial because what are we demonstrating? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to demonstrate it. It's actually to put in the effort and the heart that goes along with it. So I said here, love produces demonstration. Love produces demonstration. Compassion keeps us from losing heart. That's a very real one. Um, go to your Bibles in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Shout amen when you get there. I said shout amen when you get there. <laughs> okay. So I know there's two people there. I don't know about the rest of you. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. There we go. Now we're ready. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 
I was actually looking for a different scripture, but when I hit this one, I was like, wow, this I just hit a vein of gold. Do you see what he's saying? He's, he says, do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. What are you seeing in that? You know what I see in it? I see a parent to a child that says, look, you're going to get disciplined, but that didn't change the love factor here. See, compassion means that the love factor didn't change. When we lose compassion, the love factor changed. And so what he says that's so important, he says, but admonish him as a brother. See, you didn't expel him from the kingdom. You didn't move him from, but you're just doing the necessary correction to get him where he needs to be. That's compassion, folks. The compassion is, I want you back where you you need to be. I don't want you in this place any longer than you have to be there. So he says, don't eat with him, not because you lack compassion, but because this will bring shame. The idea behind it, and probably behind the culture, was simply this, was that when you will no longer eat with me, that means there's something that that I'm doing that I should be ashamed of. And the fact that you won't eat with me tells me I need to put that forefront in life. This isn't about you lacking compassion. This is serious compassion. And you know what I mean by that is what real compassion does a lot of times will take the grounds nobody wants to walk on with you. Man, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say it in love, but I'm going to say it. I'm going to do this, and I know you're not going to like me, and you might even be mad at me afterwards. But I'm not bittered, embittered by your reaction because the whole reason I came to you is because I love you. And that's not going to change anything. I'm never going to change that. I'm going to keep going on that in that ground with you. So as you're more mad at me, I'm going to stay compassionate and faithful to you. So we see this. I think that's what it means by don't keep company, but admonish him as a brother. Let him know that love has not changed this picture. Here's another scripture, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. You can go ahead and turn there. I won't require you to shout amen, but... Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. Listen to the the direction Jesus is telling him to go one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be like a heathen or a tax collector. Do you notice the process? This is is how much God wants to gain the heart. Even though you're offended, you don't stop there. You go and tell him the fault. Because maybe he's not aware of it. Maybe he's not thinking of it. You go talk about the fault. But how many of you know how important, this is how crucial this point is. If you go tell the fault in an attitude of bitterness, you've lost the war right there. And you've totally missed the gospel for yourself at the same point. So Jesus is like, because you've been forgiven, forgive. That's been settled. But now you go tell the fault. Why? Because this isn't about what's been done to you. This is about restoring him. So when he doesn't listen to you, go and and get another brother, not for gossip's sake, but make sure there's a witness to this whole thing and share it with him to get his heart to soften, to get him to begin to want to come to a point of repentance and feel wrong for what he's done and to want to get back to having a restored relationship and doing what God's called him to do. But if he won't hear the brother and one or two more witnesses here, then what we want to do is take him to the church. Let's take him in a congregation with the attitude to restore, the want to see repentance, and let's bring things back in order again. I mean, it would be as foolish as it would be foolish for us, for our sons and daughters, to bring them and say, okay, we're doing a corrective process just so that we can humiliate you. That's not the design behind it. And so that's why I'm saying the context, when compassion changes the context, we begin to fit what Jesus told us to do the right way. It's not embitterment and trying to do Jesus' commands through the embitterment of our spirit. It's doing Jesus' commands through the embitterment of our spirit that we're embittered by and enriched by the spirit of the living God. And again, Jesus establishes compassion with discipline. So it's not just discipline, but compassion with discipline. I will admit, as a father, I have had times of discipline 
where it was not mended with compassion. Boys, has that been nice? Have you loved that? Has that been good for you? I'm getting a no. You can, get, you, can, you can let the crowd know. No, they don't like it. Dad, when you discipline us and there's, a, there's no compassion, I don't like that. And I don't grow from that. And I don't flourish from that. Compassion tells the other person that you mean they're good while you're disciplining. Discipline is favorable because we mean the good of another person. We are in grave danger if we exact discipline and feel indifference toward that person. Compassion should make us feel the loss and the heartbreak of the rebellion of others. It should give us the sense of that. Compassion keeps us from looking at rejection as a loss. That's my last point. I've got two scriptures. Actually, i got three scriptures for you. Compassion keeps us from looking at rejection as a loss. Let's give the demonstration of Jesus first. In Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. We always need Jesus' example set in front of us. Lord, did you do this, or is it just, I, I'm trying to get this done this way? <clears throat> Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34 says this, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And then when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they were crucified with him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. You know, I think you should take the time when you get an opportunity to read through that whole story and look at what Jesus was saying. You know, Jesus, when he's blurting out these words, what do you see behind it? What's behind what Jesus said? Forgive them for they know not what they do. Yes, forgiveness is there, but the compassion that moves that forgiveness in the forefront of what's happening. Jesus is filled with compassion for those. And he's like, they don't know what they're doing. They're crucifying me, but they're blind to what's really happening here. I want you to go to another example because sometimes we just really feel like we can't quite get into Jesus' circle. Like, Lord, that's you. You're the Son of God, but this is me. In Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60, this is the story of Stephen. You'll remember this story. And when they heard these things, they were cut to heart. This is the crowd against Stephen. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Are we getting it? Is this like standing out to us that this is the heart? See, this is what Jesus is producing in there. And so we see this is a, an anointed man of God who's being persecuted and stoned to death. And at his stoning, while they're pelting him with stones and his body is receiving that, he's crying out. And notice this. When he's praying, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. I think he sees Jesus in his authority. I, see, I don't think he just sees Jesus as a Savior. I think he sees Jesus as the power and the authority to cast down judgment if he would so choose. But when he looks at Jesus, I see. I see he sees the mercy of his Savior. In light of the fact that he has the authority to judge all of mankind, he knows him. He's looking at him from a different perspective. And from that perspective, he's saying, if you saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father, 
This isn't vindication. This isn't judgment day. This isn't the moment for that. This is the moment, Stephen, before you give up your last breath. Give to them your dying plea. Give to them the last message that they need to hear. And that is simply this. It's simply, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Repeat the same words that I did, I gave when I was being crucified. And that, I think, is the message of God, is sometimes you might feel like you're on the crucible of life, and you're not sure that you can offer up forgiveness for them. And when God gives you a sense of the Almighty, the beauty of His nature and who He is, this you will never find missing from it. You will never come to a point in your life where you can look your enemies in the eyes, those who've done you ill, and find anything less then this is the heart of God. This is the emulation of who Jesus is. We will never find anything different than that. And so when you find it, it births compassion. This is what being born again is all about. Is this spirit of the living God is elevating inside of me the reality in the living Jesus. <clears throat> See, what we have to remember is this. What happens to us is temporal. What happens to them is eternal. See, what they're doing to me is only going to be temporal. This fleeting body is going to die. It's going to go to the grave. And I get to go be with the Lord forever. Think about this. Think about the fact that you're, you've already gotten the prize. You hear what I'm saying? Jesus has already said, I, prepared, I already got a place before you. And I've prepared a place for you. I've already got it set up. It's already ready for you. When, you're, when, when this life is over, when you breathe your last breath, you know where you're going. You know you're going to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There isn't anything your enemy is going to do to you. There isn't anything anybody else is ever going to do to you that's ever going to erase that. It's never going to compromise it. If anything, if there's a way for it, it's going to make it more glorious when you enter into heaven's gates. All, just one glimpse of him in glory. I love that song. One glimpse of him in glory will all the toils of life. All the toils of life repay. If you've had one more toil than I have, it's going to be just that much more sweeter for you, isn't it? And so the reality is this. If you start remembering where you're at, what God has already done for you, the gift is already given, you already have the salvation of God secured through the blood of Jesus, you're already ready for heaven's bright mansion and glory of God, then you can look at your enemy and recognize, he's not. She's not. And with much pain I bear upon my own conscience the thought, maybe one day they can be with me there too. It is never about rejection for a redeemed child of God. It is solely about the, the glory of God. It is never about rejection with us. It's about the glory of God. See, the closer you're looking at Jesus, the harder you're going to have at trying to make it about you. It's just going to get really difficult. The closer you are to Him, the more you feel like His love doesn't look like mine. His love doesn't look like me. Everything about him is so much bigger than me. I want to give you one more scripture. Not less if in along the path of doing this, I'm going to give you another one, but I haven't got another one written down here. First Peter chapter four, verses twelve through fourteen. Go ahead and turn there. Go ahead and turn there. First Peter chapter four, verses twelve through fourteen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Rejoice that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, Blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. Rejection can tell us more about where, we, where things really are. See, I love that part on your part. He is glorified. See, I think that that's where the real focus should be. Every time. You'll hear me in every sermon probably 
practically every sermon at least, be saying something of this, this state of mind is, there's something about glorifying Jesus. You know, there's a lot of times in my marriage that it's my, it's my greatest privilege. It's my greatest privilege to make my wife look better and be better than me. And the more I get that satisfaction, it's interesting how satisfying that really is. How really at heart. Now, I want to say something, because there's a satisfaction that comes as just a natural satisfaction, a blessing, maybe even a temporal satisfaction. But there's an eternal satisfaction that we all weigh in on. We may not even realize it in the moment, but why, why is it that even though I have this really good feeling that makes me want to keep doing this, why is there something more than that? I know there is. I just can't quite... I can't tell you what, but I just know it is. And I think that's the peace that God gave us. But when, if, if in our temporal relationships with our spouses that we have this peace of loving to honor somebody else and that actually being better than having recognition for ourselves, how much more for Jesus? How much more for Him? And I think there's just a very special thing. There's a, I, I don't know, I'd say like a party in heaven that goes on for when... Not just one sinner comes to repentance, but with one Christian and acts on and lives out the Christian life with the compassion that Christ had for us. You know, I share these stories with you because I, I want to, with all my heart, I want to highlight and pray. I feel like God is inspiring us as a church to be compassionate. I can't get over, um, I can't get over some of the things, some of the events, things that we've done in the past we've done together. Um, helping others, being there for. And I was talking to somebody the other night, and I said, this is what I see in ministry. I see in ministry far more needs and burdens and things with people than what we can, we can fulfill, we can be there for. But I said, this is what we do. We highlight the most important ones, and we do the best we can with them. And we let God do the rest. We let God do the rest. And this is what I, rem- what I think is this, folks, is, is you and I, as we go together and as we minister together to people around us, we support them, we help them with projects that they need help with, we minister to them, we pray with them. When we do that together, this community, all they really want to see, they, they see in different avenues, different parts of this community doing to help people. But what they don't get to see is what this community looks like when the Christians are doing it. Because we get to support them with Jesus Christ. And everything I just told you about him, I know you and I know that this is true, but this is so important. And so what I want to say is this, is that what makes this valuable is the Savior's behind it. The Savior's behind it. So as we work together and we accomplish things together as a church and the people we bless and minister to, I think this is right down Jesus' alley. You know, I think with this, the compassion as it boils in your spirit Sometimes it's hard to get past the tears. That's the reality. Sometimes it's hard to get past the tears. Sometimes it's hard to get past the frustration of how limited I really am. Sometimes it's difficult to see somebody in need and you don't have what feels like the goods to meet that need. But I'm grateful for the words of the apostle who said, silver and gold have I none. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. He said for him, rise up and walk. But maybe in the name of Jesus, it's going to be something different. But you have what you need. And you know, that's more precious than gold, more precious than anything else we give. Let's be encouraged this week to share with somebody. Let's be encouraged to get in somebody's circle. Again, I was talking to somebody. I'm going to share this at the last part of it. But we're talking about the value of one soul. The value of one soul. Now think about this. When you think of something that's valuable, what do you do? You put your time, you put your money, and the more valuable it is, what do you do? You put in more time and you put in more money. You realize this is investment that's worth making. And I want to say this. I think what happens is we lost the value of a soul. Me included. I think we lost the the enormity of the value. It's just one person. This is an eternity. This is, this is an eternal worshiper for, for God. And, and this is what happens. Listen to me. This is what happens. I try to schedule an appointment and we miss our opportunity. They probably don't feel like it. Let's try it one more time. 
try and schedule an appointment, they miss an opportunity. Or I was on the job site with them and I was talking to them and they're just spacing it. They're going back to the same old struggles they were, same old drama that they were. Nothing I say seems to hit them. It just feels like it's just water on a duck's back. Why keep doing this? Why do I keep putting effort? I think I could find somebody else who will be more receptive. You get what I'm saying? And then we like, but this is the thing. There's times when God regulates and says, okay, it's time to stop for right now. Right? But it's never a stop because I lost the value of that soul. I lost sight of how important they really are. But that's what happens to us. Is that, Man, this gets grueling. It gets tiring. It gets to feel like it's a waste of time. And we stop, we stop basing it on what Jesus is value and estimation is. And we start basing it upon how I feel, like the productivity of this whole thing. I'm not getting product from you. I'm not getting the kind of man or woman of God that you should be. I'm not seeing the repentance in your life that should be happening. Your marriage isn't where it should be. All of these kinds of things. And we start beginning to maximize, this is what I think should have happened. This was my vision and it's not happening. So then it's the product that we're not getting and we give up because we didn't get the product of your life rather than the value of the soul that's in front of us. And I'll tell you this, if Jesus said there's never going to be a product, you're not going to get a product. Actually, this person is never going to make it to be with me for an eternity. But I want them to know how extreme my love really is. And you are going to be that expression. Do you understand the value of serving your Savior without the product? And when we begin to get this, we'll begin to serve this community. We will be the church that God's called us to be. We already are, but it should be on a higher level than where we've been. And God's going to do some amazing things through our life if we just keep getting the value of what Jesus died for. Our family members are going to be a new inspiration for us to be praying for. The people in our life, we're going to encourage them on deeper levels. We're going to do a whole lot more just because we're going to be way more excited about it. In Jesus' name. Well, let's do this. I want to take a minute right now for an altar call. I want to take a minute for an honor, honor you and giving you an opportunity to share how much you love Jesus after the, toward the end of this service. I want you to have an opportunity to, to share what's been on your heart here. You know, I can't get to see how, what you're thinking, but I get a feeling I got an idea. So let's. Uh, I want the worship team to come up. And you guys know that I don't close the altar even if nobody shows up because I know at different times you feel like, you know what, I feel like I need to come. And here I am at the end, and now i got this deep touch of the Lord on my heart. So I don't like to have a final close because I like to keep the light switch on. I like to keep it on because I know that the Lord wants to use this time. So I want to give you an opportunity. I'm going to pray for you, and I want you to take an opportunity while we sing these uh, worship songs to just minister to the Lord. Come to the altar. If there's been an area in your life where you're like, this sermon was meant for me, Pastor. I've needed this. I need it so much. Please come forward. Please come forward and pray. We'll be praying for you as the Lord ministers to you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given us an inspiration and you are our inspiration for compassion, Lord. Looking at your life, seeing the way that you touched people, Lord, the way you ministered, Father, when it looked like uh, they were the lost cause and yet you found a way into their life and you ministered deeply. And Lord, you won them back and you won them to yourself. And Jesus, we are those who need your winning today. We need you to win our hearts. We need you to deepen our love and our affection. Lord, get us beyond just the mental struggles and emotional and spiritual that we have but Lord, minister to us so that we can minister to others. Help us secure the joy of your salvation in our lives so that we can be that for somebody else. Lord, we so dearly love this community. We love the people, Lord, around us. People, Lord, that walk right by us and they don't know us and we don't know them. But we know, Lord, what they need. And we know it because, Lord, you actually became that for us. And Jesus, if they don't have it and they don't know it, Lord, today we're desperate that you might gain them and you might have them, Lord, and they might know you. And Lord, we just don't want to live another day 
We don't want to go another week, Lord, and let people pass us and not remembering that they're ones you died for. We love you, Jesus, and we give you all the praise. For those, Lord, who are struggling in an area of their life, Lord, I've, I've lost my compassion. I loved, I really loved a lot, Lord, and it was easy for me to pray, but I've lost that. For those who are going through that right now, Lord, I pray for new freedom. Why don't you come up now if that's you? Why don't you come up now? I've lost that freedom and I need that right now, Lord. Please help me not just forgive, but have deep and earnest compassion for the people, Lord, that have wounded me. I want to love them a lot. Lord, I want to love them like you love them. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.